Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in crime, the amazing, the one and only, the talented, the handsome, the incredible, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's up, Dan? You're taking up time that we can use to get to this week's very special guest, Leslie. Dude, it's a jam-packed show. We've got three very special guests and a huge week of news to get through. Do you want to just get it underway, or do you want to talk about Disney Plus and their alleged 10 million subscribers who signed up the first day of the service after it cr- amid crashes and all these other things. Oh, whatever any of that means. I am we we are suspicious of numbers in general. I am suspicious of these numbers, but we talked last week about how everyone should give us ratings and no one's going to do it. So, let's get to headlines, Leslie. Up first on cable. E! has revived pop culture talk show The Soup with a new host, Jade Catapretta, who replaced Joel McHale, who replaced Greg Kinnear and Aisha Tyler and a bunch of other people. Uh, it is a venerable franchise. The series launches in 2020 with after a three-year break. Also on cable, TBS has renewed Samantha Bee's Full Frontal, Samantha Bee's Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, for a fifth season. Over at the broadcast networks, NBC has picked up Brooklyn Nine-Nine for an eighth season and tapped Ricky Gervais to host the January 5th Golden Globes. It's his fifth time hosting the gig. Meanwhile, the entire cast of NBC's long-running daytime soap Days of Our Lives has been released from their contracts as the network and producer Sony TV haggle over new deals. The show, of course, isn't canceled, but new deals with the stars have to be hammered out. They have a ton of episodes to get them through at least through the first quarter of next year. Stay tuned. That's a developing situation. Over at ABC, Fresh Off the Boat will end its run after this season. Plus, our national nightmare is over, Dan. Sean Spicer has been booted off of Dancing with the Stars after lasting far longer than anyone expected, as some clown in the White House tweeted out his support for his former White House press secretary. And then subsequently, this week at least, deleted that tweet. Yeah. (laughs) Over at Fox, Sarah Michelle Gellar is starring in a limited series that's in development at the network. And it is her second project in the works for Fox as they are making a real big bet that they definitely want Buffy on their airways. Everyone loves Buffy. In Greg Berlanti news this week. There is no Greg Berlanti news. So we'll just move on to in-streaming news. Netflix is teaming with Nickelodeon for new TV and film projects based on existing IP and original ideas and has handed out an early season two renewal to The Witcher. Okay. 
that would be Netflix that's handed out that renewal, not Nickelodeon. I got confused. Not it's Greg Berlanti either. Not Greg Berlanti at all. Adam Scott will star in Apple Plus's workplace thriller Severance from executive producer Ben Stiller. Westworld creators Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan have set their first show at Amazon, the futuristic drama The Peripheral, based on William Gibson's book of the same name. And over at DC Universe, Titans has been renewed for a third season, and that is not going to be the last time that we discuss DC Universe on this here podcast. No, we will have more on DC Universe in this week's Showrunner Spotlight segment. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five topics. Number one. Up first, according to my script, could I be any more excited about this news? I mean, maybe it's me, but I'm definitely excited about this news. I'm not unexcited about it. I'm at least curious. According to The Hollywood Reporter, in a story reported by the awesome, terrific, tremendous, and always well ahead of the curve Leslie Goldberg, a Friends reunion of some sort is in the work at HBO Max featuring all six original stars plus the creators it is emphasized. It is unscripted. Leslie, tell us about what you know about this here reunion. Well, you really just recapped it quite well, Dan, and thank you for the kind words. But yes, this is an unscripted reunion special. So picture the gang all sitting on the couch that's been making the rounds around the country as it celebrate as the show celebrates its 25th anniversary, reminiscing about the show, the creators all talking and sharing stories about what they remember and probably putting to rest once and for all the odds of a scripted reboot reunion revival of any sort, because as they've said for the last however many years, that's not something that's ever going to happen. So we should also clarify that this is something that is in the works. It's they are in talks. This is a big priority for HBO Max and Warner Media as they launch their streaming service in May 2020. This is the kind of programming and the kind of event special that you want to have at launch. Kind of think of it as the Mandalorian for Disney Plus, right? So this is even if it's even though it's an unscripted thing, it's all six original stars reuniting with the creators. Who doesn't want to hear more people talking about Friends? Look, this show is is you know celebrating its 25th anniversary. The interest in it remains high. Warner Media just paid $425 million over five years to get the show back from Netflix. Look, the odds of this happening, one source said it was 60-40 that it would come together. They got to work it out. They have to make this, this happen. I love the idea of them using the Central Perks set. And then I would love to be a fly on the wall for the contract negotiations of which three stars have to share the couch while which stars get comfortable chairs all on their own. I mean... I don't know, Dan. <laughs> Just give me a chair in the audience. That's all I want for Christmas. It seems like the kind of thing that's sort of an inevitable recipe for disappointment. And yet I would be curious to watch it all play out. And maybe it should be moderated by Gunther. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring to moderate because, look, I am a ginormous friends fan so and as there are many many other people out there to do the same and i would imagine it's going to be moderated by some kind of celebrity who's probably not gunther but if it's moderated at all I mean, at it least could you just acknowledge that gunther is a celebrity that is the only thing that matters here um yes <laughs> i would assume that if they were going to get a moderator who's not a star unlike gunther uh probably it would be someone whose publication is also owned by warner brothers we are not we are not, no <laughs> Well, I did mention the things that I want for Christmas, which takes us right up to our second topic this week. Number two. Thanksgiving is less than two weeks away. My family is solidifying our Black Friday plans. And even though it's 90 degrees in L.A. this week, there are Christmas trees all over the place. Hallmark Channel, meanwhile, officially kicked off its 10th anniversary Countdown to Christmas programming push three weeks ago. Yes, before Halloween. 
Here to get us into the holiday spirit, we're thrilled to welcome Bill Abbott to the show. Bill oversees all things Hallmark in his role as CEO of Crown Media Family Networks. Welcome, Bill. Of course. Happy to do it. Excellent. So, Bill, for the Hallmark family, we've actually already been in the middle of the Christmas season for a couple weeks now. How does this year's Christmas compare to previous years in terms of when you guys started it and the overall volume of content you guys are producing? We typically start the weekend before Halloween. So this year, because Thanksgiving is so late in the calendar, uh, it's the earliest that we could possibly start. Uh, countdown to Christmas, and that was on October 25th. So it, we started earlier this year, and uh, we have more movies than we've ever had this year as well, with 40 movies. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, it really does feel like the holidays come sooner every year. I mean, before Halloween is just mind-blowing. Have you always been launched that early, or is it just me who feels like all the older sin? Like, we're not even through Halloween yet. Why is all the Christmas stuff out already? Yeah, you know, three years ago, we started uh, this uh, now tradition of launching before Halloween, and we heard consistently from viewers how much they just enjoyed the Christmas content at that time. So we decided to go with it, and it's been a formula that's worked really well for us. And and so, yeah, there'll always be those who say, uh, you know, it's too early, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, the numbers don't lie. Well, well, I mean, can we get you on the record that there's a certain point before which you guys would never start your Christmas programming? Or is there the possibility it just becomes a year-round thing within five years? <laughs> <laughs> as tempting as that is, and as many movies we have in a, now a very deep library, I think, uh, you know, we don't want to uh, spoil what we've created here by airing too much Christmas. So I think we're good with the current format. Well, every year it seems like the competition is kind of rising up and rising up to get into your space, whether it's Freeform or Lifetime or Netflix. I mean, Freeform is announcing or just announced a Valentine's Day movie uh, this week. So, <laughs> Well, do you watch anybody else's holiday programming just to see what the competition is doing? Uh, sure. As, as tempting as it is to uh, not do that, it's hard to stay away. Uh, so <laughs> we keep a close eye on our competitors. We study what they're doing. We uh, look for trends, certainly, within the business overall. And uh, we do that, you know, really across the board. And we pay uh, extra special attention, obviously, to those who are in the holiday space. So we uh, yes, we do. Do you have any memories of what your takeaways have been the past couple of years from looking at what the other guys are doing, what you've been able to figure out in terms of trends in the space, as you say? From our perspective, our brand is so strong and so synonymous with celebrations and holidays that it's hard to replicate. So as much as others have tried and they do a great job in, in many ways, when you don't have the brand that consistently equates with celebrations, that consistently makes you think about holidays and special occasions, it's harder to pull off a holiday movie or a Valentine's Day movie or a weddings movie. And that's our secret sauce. Our brand has been around for a hundred years, long before the entertainment piece or before entertainment really is consumed the way it is today. And so we rely on that as our North Star in terms of everything we do. Let's talk about that competition a little bit more. I mean, anytime Netflix gets into a space, the price goes way up, as we've seen them do with scripted and stand-up comedy and unscripted and overall deals. And I could go on, but you get the point. But how do you guys feel 
about seeing them enter the space. I mean, coming up, they've got Dolly Parton's Heartstrings and a show with Dennis Quaid that's legitimately called Merry, Happy, Whatever. I mean, how has all the new competition, especially from Netflix, affected you guys when it comes to the bottom line? Well, yeah, so there's really, I think there are two pieces to that. Uh, One is the fact that uh, certainly, you know, the need to produce high quality content has never been greater with those competitors entering the space. And we've really uh, increased fivefold the quality of our content over really the last five years. But this year especially, we've upped our game and we have cast and developed stories in a way that has... I, we believe, differentiated us from the competition. And what I mean by that is that the way our content is relentlessly positive, family-friendly, always appropriate for all members of the family, you know, I don't think you're going to find that same type of environment on Netflix or some of our other competitors. So that's a, that's a key point of difference. In terms of cost, certainly cost has changed a little bit, but we have a very efficient model in which we produce a lot of original movies and we can capitalize on the economies of scale there. So we have uh, been diligent in terms of managing our costs. We don't enjoy the big license fees that others get who deliver less ratings than we do, but that's because we're not owned by a a broadcast network or a major conglomerate. So that's a story for another time. But at the end of the day, we have to be much more uh, strategic and cost conscious than uh, our competitors do. Have, have there been projects that you guys have lost because of the competition, like to, to Netflix and or even Freeform? No, but there are a couple that we passed on uh, that Netflix and and a couple of our other competitors bought. So, you know, we are, again, really vigilant around ensuring that everything that we air, you know, we feel like lives up to the brand, the quality of the brand. And there were a few movies, uh, a couple of our uh, competitors' platforms that we uh, had the opportunity to purchase and were well within our budget levels, but we passed on. I'm a little curious about something you said where you referred to the improving of the quality fivefold. I'm sort of curious as to how you actually quantify that and if you feel like there might be kind of conceptions out in the media or in the world about what a Hallmark Christmas movie is that's maybe five years behind and it's now something else in your mind. Yeah, and I'm so glad you asked that question uh, because it, it really has been a sizable shift in terms and really from the very beginning of the process with the development and the script writing and the attention uh, to detail that's paid from character development all the way through to dialogue before the movie is is even put in production uh, is extremely uh, time-consuming and painstaking. Then when we get into the production process, there is an eye on everything. And we started CMFN Productions about five years ago, uh, which is Crown Media Family Network Productions. And within that, we took control of this entire process, where in the past we would just take movies, basically, that producers, independent producers would actually sell to us and we wouldn't have a lot of input on the script, on the casting, on the wardrobe, on the set decoration, on the location, on all of the things that make a movie magical, especially at the holiday season. And so once we took ownership of that entire process, we were able to craft it in a manner that we felt like was more Hallmark branded and more uh, enjoyable for our viewers. So all of those components have been key to improving the quality of the content. And the ratings, we think, show that and reflect the success of uh, that endeavor. 
Um, you mentioned ratings. I, I'm curious, what's your demo during the holidays and how does that compare with the rest of the year? We're actually uh, across the board attracting an audience uh, across every demographic. And we're a little bit younger throughout the holidays than we are uh, at other times of the year. So with millennials, for example, there's, you know, a, a, a passion for the Christmas movies and that uh, branded experience. In the two plus demographic, it's very evenly split from 18 to 34 to 35 to 64 to 65 plus. And men and women as well, among men and women as well, probably 60, 40 women. At the same time, that's uh, a little bit uh, more male skewed than it would be during other times of the year. Huh. And now explain that to us, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think it is a family, more of a family co-viewing experience than it is at other times of the year. I think it's more of a quote-unquote guilty pleasure, you know, at other times for uh, more, again, in the women demographic. But I think the holidays really just are so uh, conducive to that family type of putting the TV on and, and uh, enjoying a movie that you can feel comfortable watching the entire thing without having to feel uncomfortable or run for the remote. Well, speaking of sort of expanding the demos, last year it was announced with, with some excitement that Hallmark was getting into the Hanukkah movie business and nothing in your slate for this winter appears to be identifiably Hanukkah-y. Did that not come together? Uh, no, actually it did. And we have two movies uh, this year that have that theme of kind of a, we do a little bit of a double holiday. And one of the movies is actually called, uh, one, one of the movies is called Double Holiday and the other is Holiday Date, where the couples are of different religions and some of the fun chaos that that creates. So uh, we're very proud of those movies and we think those movies really reflect an across-the-board uh, approach to celebrating the holiday season. Well, but why is neither one of them identifiably, you know, you're not using the Hanukkah brand such as it is in either case. Uh, was that something anyone considered, or do you want to kind of keep it ambiguous or vague? You know, that's a fair question and a good question. I think it's hard if we start to slice up the pie, so to speak, and, and make movies based off of specific holidays. So if we were to look at Kwanzaa, for example, or, you know, other religions and how they celebrate the holidays, it's, it's a little bit more difficult because we, we don't look at Christmas from a religious point of view. It's more a seasonal celebration. So, you know, we're very focused on that joy and aspect that the Christmas season brings as a device to utilize toward romance or toward relationships. And I think once you start to slice it more finely within individual religions, it's a little bit tougher to necessarily tell that story in a way that doesn't involve religion. And we always want to stay clear of religion or controversy. But you guys have been very directly addressing Christmas forever by name. I mean, and like you, it's in the name of your programming blog. So I guess my question is, you know, if you can have the fun of It's Christmas Carol, which remains one of the all-time great pun movie titles, where is the comparable fun involving actually being specifically either Kwanzaa affiliated or Hanukkah affiliated or non-Christmas affiliated? You know, I, I think that at the end of the day, in terms of attracting the broadest audience and the most universal term, that is both secular. I mean, I think Christmas has become almost a secular type of holiday 
more than Hanukkah, which really does have more of a religious feel. And so, you know, Christmas means a lot of different things to a lot of people. I think Hanukkah, from a religious point of view, is not necessarily as commercial and not necessarily about as uh, as much about gift giving. And it's really about what those eight nights signify uh, from the from the religious point of view. So, I'm not ruling it out as something we would not do. Uh, but this is kind of our first foray into this type of kind of double holiday mix with a lot of Hanukkah in the movie, both movies, actually. Uh, a lot of the celebration of how those nights are, uh, are again, you know, celebrated and, and experienced uh, by uh, those who practice the religion. So it's, it's a situation where, you know, we're, we're finding our way for sure. I mean, at a time when our industry, the television industry, the film industry is touting inclusion and diversity and representing underserved communities and telling stories that most people wouldn't normally associate with, you know, like obviously Christmas is a big, broad programming block for you guys. But your comments kind of seem like you're going the opposite way where, you know, like, look, there's shows like Fresh Off the Boat that have found tremendous success, you know, on for six seasons and so on. And you're starting to see other types of typically underrepresented or misrepresented communities get their time, not just theatrically, but on television now. I'm really curious why you're not leaning harder into into following that same trend, especially like, you know, look, I, I, I'm gay. Where are the same sex movies? Well, I guess I'm, I'm not sure how we're going the opposite way if we have two movies this year that have Hanukkah themes. But there's no Hanukkah in the title. That feels like it's kind of, you know, like, oh, you know, Hanukkah's there too. You know, it's like the small shelf space at Target that just has the Hanukkah decorations amid 17 aisles of Christmas stuff. I think titling is a very subjective thing. I don't think that's a necessarily a fair. I think the content of the movie is what matters and not the title. I understand. Moving on a little bit, have you talked about incorporating stories about same-sex couples at Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa? Is that something that's on your radar as you look to maybe broaden out some of what your programming is? You know, we look at a variety of different things. So, you know, um, we're always looking for the best stories that we think will resonate in, in the, the, uh, the best way. And so we're open to really any type of movie of any type of relationship in any space. But is it more about attracting a big audience or is it you know, how much of your priority is, is building that big, broad audience versus trying to be inclusive and represent the society that we're in? I mean, for me, personally speaking, I would love to have a Christmas movie with, with the same sex couple on there, especially as my nieces get older, because it's like when we spend the holidays with, with my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, they have Hallmark Channel on all the time, 24-7. Like, they legitimately watch every one of your movies, and we got sucked into all of them last Christmas, too. But at the same time, my wife and I are not reflected on, on anything that you guys are doing. And it would be really cool to broaden out and have our nieces see a version of us on TV or, or a version of anything else besides Christmas with, you know, white leads. Well, I, you know, last year we did five Christmas movies with African-American leads. And uh, this year we have four. So I think that that generalization isn't fair either, that we just have Christmas with white leads. Um, in terms of broadening out the demographic, it's again, it's something we're always thinking about, always considering, and, and uh, we'll, we'll continue to make the movies where the best scripts are delivered to us and where we think have the most potential. Well, following on that, though, you guys are 
the destination for this. So where is the line between waiting to see the scripts that are developed for you and saying to, quote unquote, the industry or to every agent you guys know, we want these three things that we've never had before. Bring us your very best pitch in this genre we haven't been covering or rather in this demo we haven't been reaching. We are always encouraging people to bring us stories across the board. And, uh, you know, it's it's not always that simple a process where you put the word out and you get back, you know, three great scripts and three great stories. And we put their word out that we're doing an original series and we get 50 bad stories, you know, so it's not as easy as I think you're making it sound. And, and it's certainly something that we do discuss consistently with our team and with our, uh, our talent and with, uh, with the agencies. In terms of things that sound easy but clearly aren't, I was watching an interview this morning that uh, Elizabeth Moss did yesterday. I don't know if you've seen it yet at, at some festival where she said that her dream is to do a Hallmark Channel uh, Christmas movie. And she was sitting there in the interview practically pitching her her dream Hallmark Christmas movie. What are the impediments that keep that from simply magically happening when an A-list actor says, God, that's what I want to do more than anything? I don't know where I would start with listing the impediments. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, certainly we would love nothing more, obviously, than to have somebody like that on our channel uh, with that type of star appeal and brilliance. Uh, but I think, I think the difference is, and I think that all of these topics are, there's a thread that runs through, whether it be talent at that level or different types of storylines or you know, really going back to the drawing board in a way and remaking our model. Um, you know, the reality is when you produce as much content as we do, which is 100 movies a year, five original primetime series, a daytime lifestyle show that's two hours a day, 52 weeks a year, basically live to tape, shot at Universal, and countless specials, um, there's only so much time in the day. And while we want to put on, and we, and we believe that we do, create content that is beloved really throughout the country, it's not always the easiest process to make every situation fit the mold for every individual, you know, who either wants to work with us or wants to watch a certain segment of the audience on our channel. It's just operating the business. Again, we're not owned by a conglomerate. We don't enjoy the affiliate fees that uh, others with significantly lower ratings and less brand enjoy. So we have to operate just very, very differently. And again, we'd love nothing more than to have her in a movie. But I think that we don't have the ability here the way others do to kind of just make stuff happen. Um, I completely understand, you know, you guys are have your own business model and that can obviously make things challenging or, you know, or easy as you look at it. Well, that's actually everything that we have. Bill, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate you calling in. Thanks, Bill. You're very welcome and uh, have a great holiday season. You, Thanks, too. you too. Happy holidays. The Hallmark Family's three dozen plus original holiday season movies air largely on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but check your local listings all through the end of December. Number three. Up third this week, 
Executive News Shuffle, 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 Shuffle. I'm getting really into this segment. This is going to be a fun segment where Leslie tells us about executives you have never heard from moving around in the firmament. So this was indeed a big week for movement in the executive suites. As highlights go, a big HBO executive is headed to a streamer like everybody else. A key member of Apple's Originals team is out, and Viacom continues to play musical chairs. Leslie, tell us, first of all, what up with Richard Plepler? This is probably the biggest news that of the week in the executive space, and maybe possibly of the year. Look, Richard Plepler was CEO of HBO. This is the guy who led the premium cable network to 19 straight years atop the Emmy nominations list. His taste, he, he rebuilt the network with original programming after The Sopranos ended with shows like True Blood and Game of Thrones. And now he is launching a production company and has signed a producing deal, not with HBO, not with Warner Media, not with Netflix, but with Apple. That's a huge, huge, huge move. It, it basically signals Plepler's intent to make and produce programming for the upstart streaming platform and i say upstart but it is a new streaming platform but it is the biggest tech company the biggest company in the world notorious underdogs apple tv plus but look he has a long you know relationship with apple tv execs zach and jamie they used to sit next to each other at the emmys all the time plepler was always really supportive when it when breaking when their show breaking bad which they produced when they were at sony when that would win, win the emmy they have similar tastes you know sony you know under zach and jamie wanted to make that kind of premium cable stuff that that hbo all and plepler always did but the big takeaway from this is it's a big middle finger to, to warner media and a massive massive blow to netflix too and it is not the only news related to the Apple TV universe this week. That's right. Also leaving Apple is their head of current and unscripted, Mr. Kim Rosenfeld. Kim was a longtime colleague of Zach and Jamie's at Sony TV and stepped, stepped down in favor of a quote-unquote producing deal with a streamer. Whenever the head of current leaves anyone it's it's considered a, a questionable move and yes you know this is the you know he's exiting for you know returning to producing you know that that's Hollywood speak for yeah he's just out it, he could very well actually make shows for Apple under the deal but I would be surprised to see that but ahead of current is the is the exec who keeps these shows running on the scripted side who is is deeply involved in all the meetings and the scripts and the directions of these programs but to me, it's a sign of trouble. You know, you can speak to the quality of the Apple shows that that have launched. I'm. Are you still watching these? Are you I'm watching C? Have you? you I'm know? sticking with them uh, for now, and of them. Dickinson is the one that I find closest to being the thing that it's supposed to be. Uh, I I think that. The morning show has settled comfortably into a solid and somewhat entertaining B-minus mode, which is a huge improvement over the first couple episodes, but not anywhere near as good as some people on my Twitter feed want to tell me that it is. Yeah, and that, that show is something that they want big reviews. They want to be thought of as premium programming. And so far, in most circles, they're, they're really not, especially if you're rating that their flagship show as a B-minus, Dan. Well, and our last piece of executive shuffling of the week brings us to the two sexiest words in the TV universe, Viacom realignment. And it, you say that like it's a common thing. And, and well, it actually is the number of veteran executives who have been shown the door at Viacom under CEO Bob Backish. It's just I can't keep track anymore. You know, Kent Alterman replaced Kevin Kay, who ran 
Paramount Network and oversaw its rebranding from Spike TV. Kay was pushed out. Now Ken Alterman's out. And before Alterman took over Comedy Central, Michelle Gainless was was running Comedy Central. She was pushed out. Execs at BET, Nickelodeon, TV Land, CMT have all been shown the door in the last couple of years. This is more par for the course. This is consolidation. Everything that we're talking about in this space, as all these companies, they're trying to bulk up and compete with these streaming giants, they're consolidating. That's what's happening in, in this space now. So in place of Alterman, who ran Comedy Central and Paramount Network, Chris McCarthy is taking over and he's adding TV Land, which Alterman also saw, oversaw. So under Viacom, McCarthy is running an incredible amount of networks. Let's start with the new ones. Paramount Network, Comedy Central, TV Land. He already oversaw MTV, VH1, Logo, and CMT. He literally just doubled his job, but did it by adding two of Viacom's most high-profile and high, and biggest priority cable networks. It's nuts. Meanwhile, David Nevins now also oversees BET along with CBS and Showtime and CBS All Access. That's a lot. Yeah, stick around after the podcast. We are going to be quizzing you on all of that. No, but like, look, I just want to say one other thing. Viacom is not the only company that, that's doing this. David Madden was pushed out in August at AMC, which merged operations under BBC America's Sarah Barnett. NBC Universal consolidated its lifestyle networks group with Bravo and Oxygen and E, all moving under Francis Berwick. E president Adam Stotsky departed and wasn't replaced. At Warner Media, Kevin Riley added oversight of HBO Max and True TV, and he was already overseeing TNT and TBS. Meanwhile, True TV exec Chris Lynn was out. Cinemax had happened there too. Kerry, you know, the president of Cinemax departed um, in March, and his role was absorbed by someone who oversees HBO Films and wasn't replaced. I mean, that's what's happening in our industry as as these traditional media companies bulk up and, and consolidate their resources as they look to compete in the streaming era. And the ability to keep track of that is all part of why Leslie is the best around. It's all part of why I have a Viacom cheat sheet next to my desk that lists executives who have come and gone because this is a story that we've been covering for years now. Fine. Yeah, it's insane. It's impossible to keep up with everything that's happening in this space. Destroy the magic, Leslie. <laughs> Number four. Up next this week, it's time for another showrunner spotlight segment. This week, we're pleased to welcome our first guests from the animated space, Justin Halperin and Patrick Schumacher, who next have DC Universe's Harley Quinn comedy featuring the voice of Kaylee Cuoco. The longtime writing and showrunning duo's credits include CBS's Feces My Dad Says, Fox's Surviving Jack, and NBC's Powerless. Welcome, guys. So I guess my first question is, because you are our first duo in our spotlight, tell me a little bit about sort of the origin of the partnership and the nature of your partnership. What is your process together? Yeah, so we met each other. We interned together in summer of 2001. It was at a Band Apart Productions, which is Quentin Tarantino's production company. But we worked in the now defunct commercials and music video division. I worked in the vault making, this is going to date me, three quarter inch tape dubs of director reels. And Justin was kind of like a floater. And we lived, we both lived in Westwood, and we, uh, at the time, Westwood had, like, a ton of little one-off movie theaters, and we we would just start going to movies, and we bonded over Pootie Tang, I believe, was the first, first film, film that we saw, saw together. together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was like the Hare Krishnas in Airplane looking at each other after Pootie Tang, <laughs> lovingly gazing at each other. And, uh, yeah, yeah, to this day, like, my mom, <laughs> my mom's like, I'll never forget you called me back in St. Louis, and you said... 
I just met the funniest person I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> and she was referring to Bill Hader, who Pat yeah. had met. Yeah. No, it was, and he didn't want to be my writing partner. <laughs> so then I was just, no. Uh, yeah, and then we made a short film together called Genital Warts, the musical. And it was a musical about someone who gets genital warts. It was not good. Um, <laughs> but it went to some film festivals. And then after that, people would be like, what are you guys, what else are you guys doing? And we hadn't really thought about that. And we just started kind of like working together. So we've been partners for, oh man, 19 or 18 years at this yeah. point. And yeah. yeah, I mean, at this, I mean, it's, it's long, I've been married 10 years and I've been with Pat <laughs> for 19 years. So it's, it, in many ways, I think a writing partnership is similar to a marriage in that you have to be able to like get mad at each other and then come back together and talk about why you're mad and what, what you, you know, want to do about that yeah i think we're both like uh, i would say we do um split up some of the responsibilities like show running i don't know how anybody runs a show solo apparently you've had like a hundred guests who all have done it but uh for us like you know we have we we tend to split up some of the duties um pat definitely has a, like a strong vision for like uh production and for just like seeing the show in his head in terms of how it's going to look and how how it should, you know, all the scenes should be blocked and things like that. Um, so he handles a lot more of that than I do. What do you guys fight about? Oh. We just get pissy with each other. Yeah, we do get pissy with each other. Also Mostly, sounds like a good marriage, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mostly Justin's just on his phone and ignores me now. I'm just like the dog whistle. So it's exactly it's like, like a marriage. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's mostly that. I mean, inevitably, at like various stages of any project, we will... We will throw our hands up in the air and say, I effing hate this project. It will inevitably happen. Why did we sign up to do this? It happens on every show. And like Harley Quinn, which we're working on right now, which is probably, I, I think it's fair to say, the most creatively uh, gratifying show we've ever worked on. It happens on that project, too. It's, uh, you know, it well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, specifically, it's one of us being like, I fucking hate this. Why did we do this? And then start talking about like, uh, the fear of losing our overall deal and then and then like going on staff of something we really hate because we did that a lot early in our career being yeah, on staff of shitty yeah. shows um and and then at some point patrick Raw always will bring up that he originally didn't even want to do be a writer he wanted to be a commercial director that'll come up and that's if it gets like really heated i didn't want to do this um <laughs> So that I don't even know how we got to that, but that's what happens. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, look, you mentioned Harley Quinn. That's coming out this month. You know, this is your first animated show that you guys have done together. Can you talk a little bit about what that transition from, obviously, from nearly two decades of doing scripted stuff um, and live action? How did first of all, how did that come about, and what have been those big challenges in getting your feet wet in that in that space? I mean, yeah. we it, can talk more about you know the, the animation genre as a whole, but it's really just blowing up right now. Yeah, yeah, that's really true yeah go ahead no the the origin of it was it literally landed in our laps we lucked into it we got a call from warner brothers they said how would you guys like to take a crack at a serialized they quoted r-rated tvma let's go with the tv ratings right a harley quinn show and a comedy and uh yeah i mean who wouldn't jump at that chance so i mean it, probably the three people they for sure asked before they came to <laughs> yeah greg daniels didn't want to do it uh, Mike sure said no. He's busy. Yeah. So so and then we spent a good oh 
year or so, I think, uh, you know, trying to figure out how we wanted to tell that story. I mean, we knew that we wanted it to be a solo, you know, Harley thing that we wanted to kind of blow past the, you know, tried and true Joker Harley abusive relationship stories that, you know, the pilot would would inevitably have to kind of focus on that, but that we would then, you know, get past that as quickly as possible and and, and tell the story of Harley becoming the, the criminal sort of queen pin of Gotham City and that we wanted it to be like an ensemble kind of almost workplace comedy. Meredith Harler Moore was like a touchstone just in terms of her being the symbol of like single woman in the city trying to make it in this sort of like scary city. And, and so um, that became like a real touchstone of the pitch in a way that we could we could pitch it to, you know, the same executives that have maybe heard a lot of they're, they're used to hearing more like broadcast uh, pitches before. Maybe I don't know. That was our thinking. Maybe that was myopic. But, anyways, it, it worked out. <laughs> it just took a while to get going because we ended up being asked to run this show powerless, which kind of inadvertently derailed Harley for like a year. And then we fortunately it was still available to us when uh, when we wanted to to come back to it so yeah, yeah and animation was i think we didn't know what we didn't know like when we were putting together the writers room we you know we've, we've staffed shows before we know how to do that we know what to look for but in terms of like the actual animation process it's so much different than live action obviously but i, I think there was a lot of like steps that like, you know first you do like kind of a rough like it's called a boredomatic where it's this like very rough animation where you're just trying to see like is the, are these like the angles and the shots that we want and then it gets a, it's a little bit refined in something called an animatic where it's like these pencil drawings they're not colored in and they're like every like eighth frame but every time you see it for us having worked in live action it's like oh fuck this is not gonna work at all and they're like no it's it's gonna be all colored in and real but it's, <laughs> but it's hard to just it's hard to have faith that that's gonna happen because at least for me because i'm used to seeing dailies and being like there it is it's all right there i just have to like cut it down luckily i would say like we're very used to i think this happens more in single camera shows but we're very used to getting a rough cut of the first episode of the pilot of your show and being like this is fucking terrible and then working from that place so i think you know that that's kind of where we've always been but i think in terms of harley what was fun for us i think two things one is we wanted to tell a story about when you're in a relationship with someone who sucks all the oxygen in the room and then suddenly that person's gone like how how do you figure out what you want because you've just been uh, living with this person who you've been kind of like just following their life and you haven't had your own but I think one of the things that's fun about any like show about supervillains is most supervillains are male and they're also like you have to have an enormous ego to just be like I'm gonna take over the world right so it's this idea of like all of these kind of like petulant man children who occupy have occupied this space who all just feel that the whole world is owed to them feels like kind of a relevant idea. And then to introduce this, this female character into that world and see how much harder she's got, she has to work to gain the respect of all these guys who have literally just kind of like had it handed to them was I think also a fun angle to take in the show. Just like we play a lot of the villains as like petulant man children with their own sort of like, you know, Bends, but it just became like a really fun thing to write. 
what is the sort of learning curve of realizing the things that you can actually do in animation that maybe in live action you haven't been able to do, whether it's language or violence or all of the things that this goes very extremely towards? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people are like, there's no limitations in animation. I mean, that's what we thought going in. And, and there certainly are. You know, we probably killed uh, <laughs> Jennifer Coyle, who is our, our producer, who is kind of in charge of all things aesthetic with the show. She's like works over the supervising director who works over the episodic directors who work over the storyboard artists. And she was there from the start developing the entire show with us. She yeah. Like, yeah. She deserves so much credit. Yes. And we've certainly taken years off of her life asking her to essentially redesign the show like every episode because, you know, you have standing sets in live action, right? So you don't have to, you know, kill your budget building sets for every new episode. Well, in our show, we were just like, eh, but it's a drawing, so let's just do that, right? Draw more and, stuff. Yeah, just draw more stuff. And it's like, oh, no, it takes a lot more effort and time and manpower and money to do that. And so that was a that was a learning curve that there there are limitations to animation, despite having, like, a lot more cracks at the bat to, like, fine-tune it and get it all right. It's still, um, yeah, it does have its have its limitations, and I know, you know, move, moving forward, should the show get a get a renewal, hopefully, knock on wood, uh, you know, we, we will use that to our uh, advantage, where we're not, uh, like, let me put it this way, this is the first time that I've ever worked on a show where crew members of the show have just physically injured themselves like repeatedly like carpal tunnel is a real thing <laughs> like you would see people coming into work and they're like well i had a long night and their arms are like in slings like both of them i'm like how'd you get up the elevator <laughs> it's 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 tough it is a physically demanding job for board artists that are doing like iteration after iteration and we're just sitting on in our offices with our feet up smoking cigarettes like yeah just draw it again <laughs> but, you know, in a larger sense, I, I want to talk, you know, this is your second show for DC. You know, you mentioned Powerless, which ran on NBC live action. But how does the process differ when it comes to Harley Quinn for a streaming service that is owned by DC versus DC producing a show for NBC? Oh, it's very different. First of all, I think since DC is the network, but they're also the like owners of the IP, in that sense, it's much easier, right? Because NBC, when we were doing Powerless, NBC kind of like, they they had different, different ideas than DC did about how, the, NBC's like, put Batman in the show. And DC's like, nope. yeah, we can't just like put <laughs> Batman in everything. And like, you can't, you know, like there was an understanding, like DC is the keeper of their IP, right? So- and then you have to compete with the film division and what they're doing, and then there's everything on the CW, and there's different traces of DC throughout the TV landscape, too. Right, and they're very careful, I think s smartly, about making sure characters don't get like oversaturated. And I think in a great way for this show, they were like, we've never done anything like this show. We've never done a comedy that's like this. We've never done, certainly not animated, certainly not rated R. So they said, think of this show as its own, we think of this show as its own universe, which means if it's its own universe, you can use whoever you want as long as it's like the characters behave the way the characters might behave. And so in that sense, it was great. Like DC was really an unbelievable partner on this show because they, they like, you know, they were just like, yeah, here are the keys to the kingdom be respectful versus know? powerless where you were kind of right powerless, the same limits yeah, yeah i remember having discussions about whether we could see batman's hands in an episode 
because um, you it know, it was just an episode where Batman did an unboxing video. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been great, but we were canceled. Look at these <laughs> LOL surprise dolls. Yeah. This Kinder Egg is. Uh, it's this is 4K from Toy Story 4. <laughs> Uh, it was great. My kid loved it. It didn't air. Uh, no, Batman doesn't do an on But that Don't is the kind of like, you know, that, that, that is the kind of joke where we make it in the writer's room at Harley and we're like, yeah, let's try that. <laughs> um, but but I think with, with, you know, yeah, it's like you said, with Powerless, there is like the, there was, it, it's tough. It's live action. There are already a lot of live action DC TV shows. Um, one or two, yeah, one or two. So, so I think it's just it, it, it. This allowed us to kind of be like, once we really, they were like, this is your your own universe. Then we were, we we could do what we wanted, yeah. and there's a lot less. I would say like there was the same amount of oversight, but a lot more leeway. Well, yeah, and you know they they fully embraced the that it was going to be a, an, an edgy comedy told from the perspective of a supervillain who views all of, you know, essentially like the Justice League and their ilk as, you know, wet blankets or like Batman's a buzzkill. So his, you know, we're able to kind of skew our portrayals of those characters a little bit more toward, you know, the satirical and poke a little bit more fun at, you know, Superman's kind of a big blue boy scout who tells lame dad jokes. And yeah, Batman, who Diedrich Bader voices, is he's just kind of a, a, a grim asshole. And the, the, the one thing that I'm surprised they let us get away with is our representation of uh, Commissioner Gordon, which is wildly different than anything we've seen before, where he we, we were like, okay, if you're the police commissioner in Gotham City, like the most brutal place in the world to live, essentially, or most brutal city in America to live, you know, every day of your life is the film Seven, um, <laughs> you would go dark fast. And so in our show, he's got a bad drinking problem. He is dour. He is, you know, cynical. He, he, he is, he's the guy that Batman's like, get a grip, man. Like, not all hope is lost. And Chris Maloney voices him and plays that sort of, like, unhinged, crazy cynic. Which he obviously can do Better very than well. anyone, yeah. yeah. So, so um, that's, that was the one where, I mean, it was a conversation, certainly. You know, we went back and forth on it. But, man, they let us run with that one. And I think people are going to enjoy Gordon. It, it was also, I think, like, and this, this I think, is a secret weapon in, in any television show, is when you're, if you have a big star as number one on the call sheet and they're behind you, then they have a lot of, a lot of heft that they can push back. And so we had Kaylee Cuoco and Kaylee is, was super supportive of the show, loved what she was doing. And so Warner brothers and DC can tell us to fuck off and that's fine, but it's a lot harder for them to tell Kaylee Cuoco to fuck off. They're not going to do that. And I don't think we ever got to a point where DC or Warner Brothers felt like that about us, but it we knew that Kaylee had our backs. So because of that, it was like just a security blanket of like, we're going to try this. They're going to let us try it because we have this big star behind us who's going to make sure we do try it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we saw Kaylee at, at TCA and obviously I've, I've written about Big Bang Theory for a decade plus, but it seems like she really dove right in because this was kind of the opposite of playing 
Penny from Big Bang Theory, right? You know, what was that process like? Did it did it seem like she was just like, let's go darker, let me drop some more f bombs in this episode? Like, how did she? You know, you just touched on it a little bit, but like, is there an example where she really went to the mat to support something that you guys were doing or wanted to do? I mean, she has she has been like crazy supportive of it, and it, it, it's it's one of those things where like I never, I don't think either one of us ever are surprised when an actor will come to you and be like, I don't know if I feel comfortable because they're the ones who ultimately have to say it. It's their face on TV. It's it's the hundred gifts that are going to be made are going to be made of them if they look stupid, you know. But she has this. I remember one of my friends worked on New Adventures of Old Christine, and he said like the thing he loved so much about Julia Dreyfus was. Literally, if a joke bombed at a table read, she'd be like, let me try it again. Let me try to do it again. Even if the writers were like, this joke sucks. Fuck this joke. And she's like, just let me try your words again, which is such an amazing thing. Somebody, Julia Dreyfus doesn't have to do that. And I think that that was Kaylee, too. It was just like, let me try it. Let me just let me try what you've put here and see if I can make it work 10 different ways. And then if I can't 10 different ways, then let's talk about it. And and. I mean, he, Pat directed a lot of the episodes. Yeah, well, with Dean Laurie. Yeah, Dean Laurie, and then Charlie Adler. Um, both Dean and Charlie were uh, directed a lot of the episodes early on, and they were instrumental, I think, in working with Kaylee to figure out the voice of Harley and how she wanted to approach the character, and really harnessing that like manic energy of the character that it, that is very different than anything I think Kaylee has played before. And I think she she's kind of categorized it as as be feeling like it's it's therapy. It's like you know scream therapy or shout therapy, whatever they call it. Whatever the Tears for Fears song was about. Um, that's a stated <laughs> reference. Reference for us. Um, you know, uh, it's like that Glenn Miller album. <laughs> yeah, uh. yeah. Well, it all started with talkies. Uh, but. but <laughs> I'm, but, just, I'm just holding off on dropping an OK Boomer here, which would be the, <laughs> the first time I've ever wanted to do it, and it would be totally inappropriate. Yeah, so. but people are going to listen to this like a year from now, and OK Boomer is already going to be out of the picture. It's so. timeless, Pat. It, timeless. It's, ever, it's an evergreen, evergreen meme. Those memes are evergreen. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was you know it was a process, and we ended up kind of going back and re-recording the first handful of episodes once we had kind of landed in a place where everybody was comfortable with Which, it. Which, again, I was, like, shocked. She was totally game to do. She was like, oh, yeah, we got it. In episode three, I figured out this is how I want to we, – we all figured out, like, this is how we want to voice, voice Harley. And she's like, yeah, let's go back and redo the ones I did already. Which, like, again, doesn't sound like a big thing to all of us sitting here at the table, but if you work with actors enough – it's a big thing. They just yeah. they don't want to do that. I mean, so you they, can even listen to her in the trailer that that just dropped this week, and she the tone that she has. It's like the the op. It's like Penny unfiltered. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we then we found that, and we kicked open the doors of the artist bullpen, and we said, "Boys, you got to draw again. <laughs> draw it all over again. Draw different." And they looked at us. <laughs> they held their casts up high. And <laughs> We're in. So we're gonna be like sued by the animation guild. I'm curious on the sort of the impact of Suicide Squad here? Because it feels yeah. like it's kind of a, a double-edged sword where on one hand, this is a movie that made a tremendous amount of money. And on the other hand, it's a movie that a lot of people, snobbier people like me, maybe didn't think was a you know particularly great movie. Does that give you more or less freedom to work with this character in How your own way? How dare you? It's a perfect sir. film. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, I, well, it, it, I think they have acknowledged that this kind of takes place in its own universe. I know I, there's been, and this is beyond our pay grade, but like there've definitely been dialogues between the, 
feature executives and TV executives regarding the new Harley Quinn Birds of Prey film that's coming out in February because like the subject matter of, you know, Harley's emancipation is touched upon in both uh, films. So I know that like they're the feature people have seen episodes of our show and well, I've seen nothing of Birds of Prey myself, but uh, but we, I think we asked to see, it and they were like, "Why do you need to see it?" Yeah, <laughs> we're like, "Okay." Yeah, but uh, but everyone seems to think that we're not like you know we're not crossing over to it in an uncomfortable way with uh, with what they're doing in features. But yeah, Suicide Squad was never really part of the equation, just it, it, because like Margot's representation of Harley is is very different. I mean, ours is, was trying for pure comedy. Suicide Squad delved into some of the more, you know, some of the, the darker stories that uh, have been told about Harley and the Joker's relationship. And uh, yeah, again, we didn't we didn't want to we didn't want to get icky. Right. Like like we wanted to kind of uh, again, like like tell a version of that story that doesn't make you feel icky. So it, it enables you to laugh. Yeah, I think that was the thing. It's like we wanted to talk about being in a you know a relationship with that's toxic with a toxic person but we were like i we we didn't want to there are parts of that relationship that have been seen in other in the comics and in in uh the movies that felt to us like you know what this does not feel like the right medium to do that and wasn't what we wanted to do so we we kind of decided this is the angle we're going to take with it how quickly can we get to kite man (laughs) and the answer is episode two did anything cause the dc people to raise their eyebrows in terms of what anyone said or did within well (laughs) when we sent in the pilot there's this there's this this, like throwaway line in the in the pilot where she says she accuses she she says that she that batman is called batman because he fucks bats um, which obviously is not the case. And she would just, we, we were uh, like, obviously. thanks for the clarification. I, I really appreciate it. It's like someone from DC is over your shoulder yeah. making sure it's that you make that clear to everyone. definitely not the case. Ow, ow. But when we sent he it doesn't in, fuck bats. When we sent in the script, uh, uh, a guy from DC who we really like was like, he's like, she can't tell, she can't say that to Batman. And we were like, well, think about Harley, right? Like Harley and all these villains, they, they are they live to torture Batman. Like, that's what they do. And Harley especially, who's off, is just always going to try to say things to get a rise out of him, which is what she's doing in that moment. She's just trying to say something to get a rise out of him. And when we explained it like that, they were like, okay, like, we'll we'll see it. Like, well, we'll let's just see what it looks like. Which but they were all, always great about that. We're like, yeah. like oh, all right, we'll watch it in animatic, and if it doesn't work, please change it. Yeah. And uh and yeah, and, and it stayed. There's I remember there was a thing, this was Warner Brothers, not DC, but we had like ten conversations in a row about this whole run in the second episode that has to do with finger banging. <laughs> Which it's like the episode takes place at a bar mitzvah and it's like these teen <laughs> these teen kids who that's what like gross teen boys talk about and we just got our explicit language warning for the podcast episode <laughs> <laughs> you're sorry. saying we it's weren't okay. you're saying we weren't there beforehand i mean if we weren't already we are now <laughs> sorry sorry but uh that was one where we said like look like if it if we see it and it doesn't work like we'll throw it out like we don't want to be the guys who like put the, something out there that doesn't work and we just like we're like no this is what it's got to be so i think they were good about like yeah let's we'll take a look at it but if it doesn't work, we all have to agree to throw it out. And we were like, yeah, no problem. Let's talk about the big 
you know, the, the bigger picture, you know, this is airing on a, a platform DC universe that at, at a time when there's, look, there's 600 scripted shows out there, you know, Disney Plus just launched this week, Apple launched two weeks ago, you've got HBO Max coming around next year, followed by Peacock and Netflix and whatever the hell is going on at Crackle and a million of these other services. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) but Peacock, that's not a thing. (laughs) Congratulations, Peacock. You officially have the worst name of everything in town. But how, what kind of awareness do you guys have about how people see DC universe? Like, is there a brand awareness? Like as you tell people who are not in the industry, what you what you're working on and how they can watch it, what's the reaction? Do people know what DCU is? Yeah, there, there's been a shortage of awareness on occasion, yes. It depends, yeah, it kind of <laughs> depends on where you, it's one of those things, it's weird, it's one of those things where the people who do know what it is, like, really know what it is. Like, not, they haven't just, like, kind of, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. I very rarely get, like, I've heard of that. It's either, like, oh, yeah, DC Universe, they got Titans, they got this, they got, or it's, like, what, what, what is that? So I think it, it's definitely, in terms of outside the business, it's, 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 it feels like it's like an indie thing almost, even though it's obviously these big corporations making this big streaming service. But I think smartly, DC Universe, and this is what they told us from the start, was like, we're not trying to be Disney+. Plus. We know we can't be Disney+. Plus. We're trying to make sure we're servicing our audience better than any of these other places could service this specific audience. And we were we were kind of like, just keep the paychecks coming. Uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, I think that they've done a good job reaching out to that audience. What have you guys been told about the future? I mean, look, there's uh, of that platform specifically, you know, at, you, you brought up Disney Plus, too. And obviously they have a huge Marvel tab right on the home screen with HBO Max coming up next May. It would make sense to combine and put, at least to me anyway, to put a, D, a big giant DC tab to start there. I mean, that's a huge brand for Warner's. Yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. I think they're waiting to We've see how we do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I think Doom Patrol is going to HBO yeah, it'll, Max. It'll be, on it'll both, be shared. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that would be lovely if that happens for us. That would be great. It feels like, uh, you know, now that Warner Media is like finding its identity, that the sort of corporate synergy one might expect is happening, and 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 there are more opportunities for that. So. Yeah, um, you know, they've told us nothing concrete. You know, we have certainly asked about that because it seems like the, you know, the amount of potential eyeballs from an HBO Max would uh, would be nice. But, uh, yeah, we're going to keep asking and uh, until, you know, it actually happens. We, we just don't know. Yeah, we I mean, I, 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 there's so many, like, what you realize once you start going to, like, these meetings when shows are launching is that there are so many like side deals that have been made to sell your show in so many different places that all of those deals, the, the, the decisions are made so far above you or even the people who are above you that you just like, don't know. Like I remember, I can't remember what show this was, but one time we we were like asking why something wasn't going to be available on that, a show that we had done, why it wasn't going to be available on Hulu. And they were like, Oh, that's because it's sold uh, internationally to Netflix for this thing, so we can't air it here. And it's like all these like weird things that we have no idea what's going on because we're not business people. So we we're, when we when we say we don't know, we like yeah. genuinely that's, don't. It's know. very complicated. I mean, and HBO Max and Warner they're not the only company sorting out a lot of that stuff. Obviously, we saw you know last week. FX on Hulu that, that's you know Disney is, is going through the same stuff as I'm sure Comcast will with Peacock too 
well, when do you guys need, when do you guys need to know something about a second season? What is the timetable for? Especially considering how long animation, the process of animation takes and, it, you know, and how your penchant for torturing your, your artists. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we've, we've already, you know, we're in, we're in post-production now on the first, uh, 26 episodes that we've done so uh, uh, we've split up in terms of like the storytelling it's 13 and 13 That's yeah there's the two discrete yeah. 13 episode arcs. arcs um but technically still one season if we're being anal retentive about it for yes. no reason in particular sure. yeah <laughs> yeah it's yeah. confusing from our point of view also. Yeah, then, then there's, you know, season 1A, season 1B, and that's a whole other ball of wax. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, but we, you know, if you were to use sort of a typical, you know, episodic numbering, it's it's episodes 101 through 126, uh, despite 113 having, like, a clear, like, end. We're, so, like I said, we were in post-production. So, you know, our, our production happens in Korea. There's three Korean studios that we work with. So that, that's the weird thing about animation where like with live action, you think about production and this being like really intensive for like the showrunners and really production is like what's going on over there for like 18 weeks an episode because that's how, that's how long it takes for them to like, you know, fully animate an episode and you get it back. And that, once you get that back from Korea, then you're into post-production. So we're, we're going to be in post-production through March. They're... M- like we're essentially shut down though so there isn't any um like deadline per se uh for like you know being able to like amortize like uh keeping the crew on and that sort of thing like we're we're done for the time being there was a scenario a long time ago i think it was like back in march where it was like if we were like ready to get into like a a second season or whatever we could have jumped into it if the money was right but i think now it's just like uh, not the money for us. We're like, back up the Brinks truck or else we're not making more episodes. We're not making these funny drawings. <laughs> unless, you know, the only people that can tell Harley Quinn stories now. But no, it's it's basically like up to them to say, like, we want to put on a second season by this time. And then we'll try and back into that, essentially. So, um, yeah, it's... I, hopefully I'm hoping that, like, by the end of the year, we have an idea as to whether or not we're getting another season. And these 26 episodes, they'll air weekly first 26 straight weeks? The first 13 will definitely air. There might be a break after that. But I think it's one of those things where that, you know, you guys are seeing all the time, as we are, where, like, it, there's less and less incentive for these companies to make more than a few seasons of your show. So it, it's one of those things where... Maybe they love the show. Maybe the show does great. And then maybe they think, oh, these 26 episodes are enough. Or maybe they're like, you know, we can, this, th- if we do another 26, these will allow us this kind of profit <laughs> for doing it. So I think that, you know, I feel like I know less about the business each day now <laughs> versus when before I was like, oh, I'm learning more about the business each day. And now it's, I feel like I know less every day. I mean, about it's changing it. faster than anyone can keep up with, myself included. Yeah. So. I mean, yeah, it's like your guys' your, – your job has become infinitely more difficult because, to report on the business than – because nobody knows what's going on. You know, we always like to end these interviews with the same question. What are you guys watching? You know, there's so much content out there. What are you watching and enjoying? Well, I was late to the game on Succession, but I was quick to catch up. Uh, it's incredible. I've, I'm telling you this with a Waystar Royco sticker on my iPhone. But uh, yeah, Succession, uh, I, I just did uh, get Disney Plus and have already binged quite a bit of uh, Mandalorian and uh, Gargoyles, <laughs> getting back into Gargoyles. 
Jeff Goldblum uh, explains the world or the world according to Jeff Goldblum, whatever, whatever it's called. The Jeff Goldblum one. What are you watching? I just this morning finished Unbelievable, which I thought was really good. Um, I pop in and out of Narcos and will someday finish that as well. I was late to Fleabag and then watched all 12 of them and was like blown away. That was one of those shows where like everyone had been telling me how amazing it was. So like as a writer, you're like, uh, I'll see how fucking amazing this is. <laughs> uh, and you kind of come in with a chip on your shoulder. And I was like, wow, this is better than what everyone was telling me was it, it was. Uh, that's what we critics have been doing, underselling Fleabag. That's, that's just <laughs> been pretty much what we've been up but to. But even with all of that, I was still like, I bet it's not as good as everybody's saying. And, and I really thought it was better. I mean, I it was like to me one of the most like, one of the best viewing experiences I've had in years. What else am I watching? I also love Succession, too, as I will... Uh... Oh, Watchmen. Oh, yeah, Watchmen. We're both watching yeah. Watchmen. It's, been, it's uh, been really interesting, too, talking to Justin about it, because Justin is unfamiliar with the comics. Uh, and so oftentimes you will text me being like, who the fuck is Adrian Veidt <laughs> or what, you know, whatever. So it's really, it's, it's interesting just as kind of like a litmus test or to see like whether it, it works or not for somebody who has zero knowledge of the original sort of comics canon. Um, it, it, it doesn't. That's <laughs> yeah. the answer. It just doesn't. Work. I am very lost. It's just confusing. Uh, <laughs> but I'm no pun intended. Um, I think we both kind of religiously watch Rick and Morty when oh, it yeah. comes out. The season premiere was, like the one of the more Rick and Morty Rick and Mortys that I've seen. It was in a while. very Rick and Morty. Yeah, yeah. Sh- shrimp Rick, shrimp Morty. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then let's see, anything else? Uh, I mean, this conversation could go on for a considerable you amount, of time, yeah. amount of time. Uh, <laughs> oh, I do want to say this, even though it's not TV, but it is on Netflix. Uh, I really enjoyed The King with Timothy Chalamet, who, by the way, we auditioned to be the lead in Surviving Jack, this Fox show we had in 2014. And what he was passed on by unnamed executives, and then he goes on to become Timothée Chalamet. I'll just say that happens sometimes in this business. That is my favorite factoid of the day. Yeah, that's Thank pretty you, good Justin. One. <laughs> uh, well, it feels like a good note to wrap things up. Um, Harley Quinn begins streaming November 29th on DC Universe. Guys, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks Thank for you having us. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's new arrivals include the final season of Amazon's Man in the High Castle, Kat Denning's Hulu comedy Dollface, the third season of Critical Darling The Crown on Netflix, and the Mad About You reboot that every network passed on and until it landed at whatever the hell Spectrum is. But the real big headline this week, Dan, has been the debut of The Mandalorian on Disney+, Plus, which, as you noted last week, did not send out screeners for this. It did not, and Disney held a little uh, uh, screening for for fans and whatnot in several cities last night for additional episodes and didn't invite me. So I've currently only seen the first episode, which was fun and brief. And those are two reasonably nice things. There's sometimes something to be said for not going down a road of self-importance, and The Mandalorian, at least in the early going, is accentuating the amusing genre aspects of it and not going down a deep well of dark mythology. Maybe that will happen in future episodes. I thought it had a nice kind of West space Western vibe, which A New Hope did also. So it's all part of the franchise. 
several people have asked me about the show. Is Pedro Pascal good? Uh, based on the premiere, I didn't see his face, and he said maybe five lines of dialogue, so I don't know. But it ended in an amusing place, and I am looking forward to watching more episodes of The Mandalorian. And episode two is now streaming on Disney+, Plus, so be sure to stay tuned to Dan's Twitter feed for thoughts on episode two of The Mandalorian. I will surely tweet about it, but yes, lots of TV this week. I have not gotten to the Mad About You reboot because, uh, like most of the network's on television i have not actually been holding my breath waiting for this particular thing but i will <laughs> definitely watch it before next week dollface is well it's a better use of cat dennings than two broke girls and so I, I say that with great enthusiasm similarly it is a better use of brenda song than dads on fox was seriously it's a great cast it is just a fairly stale run-of-the-mill variation on female friendship storytelling that is being done much much better actually at hulu where they've got such fine shows as shrill and of course my all-time favorite hulu's penis there are great shows about female friendship on television this is not one of them it does however have a great cast and then there's the crown which is actually the best thing premiering on tv this weekend it remains really and truly just a remarkable show because it takes this world that you didn't think that you had the patience to spend more time in and it does amazing things with it and they overhauled the entire cast which they always said they were going to still an impressive thing given how acclaimed that cast was Claire Foy won an Emmy everybody was nominated for awards all over the place and guess what Olivia Coleman spectacular Tobias Menzies super Helena Bottom Carter fantastic it is just a really good show and it's been two years since we've had new episodes and so very excited about that. This is a good opportunity for us to plug what's coming next week. Be sure to tune in when we will be joined by the crown creator and showrunner Peter Morgan for our showrunner spotlight. But Dan, before we wrap up for the week, I think it's time to acknowledge some news that we missed. We did indeed miss uh, last week that Comedy Central canceled the Jim Jeffries show after three seasons. Jim Jeffries show was never really a show that got the same level of buzz and critical conversation as your last week tonight's with John Oliver, your full frontals with Samantha B, even a new show like Jesus and Marrow. Uh, on the other hand, it was a really good show and it was a show that kept expanding what it attempted to do. The past season, season and a half have been heavily focused on Jim Jeffries going on kind of international jaunts to learn things about different countries and different cultures, whether it was doing a ride along with his brother, who's a Australian police officer or multiple episodes set in different locations in China and Japan. It really was a show that tried a lot of things. And to me, Jim Jeffries is the perfect example of a comic who is consistently pushing boundaries and yet doing it in smart ways and doing it in sensitive ways and understanding the direction that you're supposed to punch for good comedy. And he's just really good at what he does. Legit on FX was a show that deserved more audience and more conversation about it. And he has signed on to do at least a put pilot for NBC. And I don't know if that's necessarily the right place for him because he likes swearing and NBC is not going to let him do that. So maybe, maybe this is the kind of thing that should get developed at NBC and find its way to a little streaming service we like to make fun of as Peacock. But yeah, it, it is a very good show. And it's not like it's going to leave this gaping hole in the 
comedy universe on television. There are still lots of shows doing the things he was doing. He was just doing them really well. And so I wanted to say a few nice words about the Jim Jeffrey show because I don't get the chance to write about it nearly enough. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up for the week. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really, really like us, write a little review. It helps people know that we're good or something. If you want to talk to us, we're always happy to chat with you on uh, on the Twitter. We're always happy to hear your feedback, pros and cons. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments as we head towards the end of the year, you can reach us at TV's Top 5, the number 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Mr. Feinberg. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.